Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Do you all humble Yusuf an apology for the state you've handed the party to him in? I think Hamza's doing, in very, very difficult circumstances, uh, an outstanding job. Uh, I have uh, become ever more convinced, and I was already uh, convinced of this, that he's going to be a very fine uh, First Minister. I understand uh, the, uh, the view that some people might have, that I knew this was all about to unfold, and that's why I walked away. Nothing could be further from the truth. I could not have anticipated in my worst nightmares what would have unfolded over uh, the past few weeks. Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. Lovely to be with you. We're recording on Wednesday, the 26th of April. Thank you for finding us. It's lovely to have you there. And thank you for being with us. If you've been there from the start, thank you very much. Uh, We are here. We've got a special guest to introduce to you in the next few minutes. But of course, our regular special guests are here too. Uh, We've got Jeff Aberdeen, who was Alex Salmon's Chief of Staff when he was First Minister. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. And also with us, Andy McKeever, who is Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Good morning, good morning. Good to have you both there. And we will introduce the Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sarwar, at this point as well. Hello, Anna. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Um, It's great to have you there. We were just actually, we were admiring your bookshelf just before we pressed record. Um, This is, this was the Campaign HQ is where you're joining us from. Leadership Campaign HQ. Mm. It was. Thankfully, it gives me a decent kit. But I'm going to make a confession right from straight off the bat. I have not read every book behind me on the bookshelf. <laughs> the only person, the only person that's read every book behind him on the bookshelf is Gordon Brown, and he's probably read them twice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll get stuck into conversation with Anna in the next few minutes. Uh, it's great to have him with us. Right, Jeff and Andy. First of all, as ever, we've got lots to kind of consider, and I suppose lots of what we want to talk about kind of falls under the umbrella of the communication of the SNP during this moment of crisis, because that has become a kind of running theme. And actually, just by way of getting started. Let's have a little listen to the First Minister, Hamza Yusuf, speaking just in the last couple of days. When you pitched yourself as a continuity candidate in the leadership campaign, did you expect to have to tell press weeks later you do not believe the SNP is operating in a criminal way? Well, I was asked the question and I said, of course, uh, I said the SNP is not operating in a criminal way. I don't believe uh, the SNP is operating uh, in a criminal way. There's a live police investigation, so there's only mm. so much I can say around that investigation and what has happened over the last few weeks. Have you ever used a burner phone? No. Have you ever heard of anyone in your party talking about burner phones? No. Would you be extremely surprised if that turned out to be the case? 
Uh, yes, but it depends. I mean, for example, when you run a campaign, instead of using your personal phone, uh, people might well buy a new SIM card and a new telephone number and make that the campaign phone number. So it depends on your definition of what you mean by, by a burner phone. So well, burner phones are about anonymity, aren't they? They're usually seen as something that so people that, use to cover that, tracks. So if it's that, then of course I'd be surprised if that was being used in an election campaign. But you're asking me to now comment on potential issues in a live police investigation. I'm very reluctant to do so. OK, lots of heads and hands. Jeff, go for it. Yeah, I mean... Jeff can't speak at the moment. <laughs> you need to give him a couple of minutes. <laughs> well, no, I, you know, I've said previously, guys, that I feel that I've got a lot of respect for Hamza and his approach to try and be transparent and as accommodating as possible to the press. But, you know, we can't continue in, in, in this regard in terms of this continuous drip, drip, drip of stories. And, you know, crisis communications, as far as politics is concerned, uh, there's a few golden rules of thumb. You know, firstly, you do not repeat the charge. And, and sadly, Hamza repeated the charge twice there about uh, uh, trying to clarify that the SNP is not a criminal organisation. I think if somebody's listening to that saying, uh, well, I didn't think they were to begin with, but now that you've said it twice, maybe there is something uh, there. Secondly, you don't engage in the premise. You try and avoid engaging in the premise of a journalist's questions. If you give them an inch, they will take a mile. And thirdly, the most important thing is to try and pivot to what you want to talk about, the golden rule of three. You know, what are the proactive, positive things that you want to talk about? And what we forgot about this particular clip is this was in the margins of him visiting the Prime Minister for the very first time. So you know, why not say, look, this is all matter for the police investigation. I'm not going to engage in that. But what I am here to talk about is uh, the importance of, of getting Scotch whisky treated uh, fairly, the importance of the devolution of energy policy, the, the importance of uh, tackling the cost of living crisis, whatever it is that you're there to talk about, you get to that as quickly as possible and you return to those things. Uh, the, the message discipline in the SNP, as I've said in previous podcasts, uh, uh, has really been lacking. Mm. Uh, and that's not just Hamza there, it's uh, Colin Beattie recently who uh, kind of had to clarify his own comments on whether he was aware of expenditure on uh, the motorhome. Uh, we've had a number of occasions now where uh, SNP politicians are seeking to be transparent, and I get that, uh, but getting the party into more of a mess. So that there has to be a much more uh, collegiate, consistent, and uh, a better approach to crisis communications. And this is not certainly a crisis, I'm sad to say. Mm. Andy, it, it's quite a, I mean, it's quite a rapidly increasing and growing outbreak of foot-in-mouth disease, isn't it? It seems nobody in the SNP is immune from, I mean, what I would say as a journalist is committing news, which is an absolute triumph for those of us who are, you know, in pursuit of stories. It's great, but it's absolutely mind-boggling from a political party point of view that this is kind of is, is being allowed to happen. Is that the right way to say it? Or is anybody um, even thinking yeah, that is. actively it about it, do you think? Yeah, no, it's being allowed to happen. And there, there's a management issue here, I think, as well. I mean, Hamza Yusuf is coming... I think it's important to clarify from Hamza Yusuf's point of view that he's coming into um, his time as First Minister uh, in the most difficult position that any First Minister has come into. He's the sixth First Minister of Scotland. The previous five have come into significantly easier situations than the one that he has come into. So he's coming into an entry which includes... Gender recognition, deposit return, alcohol advertising, national care service, ferries, HPMAs, high protected marine areas, um, independence strategy. And, you know, all of these, any of these things alone are difficult. Mm. All of them combined 
are exceptionally difficult, nearly impossible. And then you have the situation where he's also defending an almost unassailable tally of seats at Westminster and Holyrood. So he's already coming into a difficult situation. Then you layer on top of that the police investigation. Um, and, you know, you, you have to feel personally very sorry for him because none of what he was having to talk about yesterday is his fault. None of it. It's not his fault. And the same thing would have happened whether Kate Forbes or Ash Reagan had won the contest. That it's not because Hamza won that this is happening. It's because this is happening that this is happening. Mm. But that's where the management issue, I think, comes in. And for those of us who's, who've observed, I mean, obviously, Jeff has been involved, and I'll refer to that in a wee second because it's actually quite pertinent. But for those of us who've been observing the SNP over a number of years, we have observed the slickest political machine in the UK for sure, arguably anywhere in Europe. And for it to go from that to this, which is rank amateurism, to be honest with you, is, is quite unbelievable to watch. In the space of three hours yesterday afternoon, three hours yesterday afternoon, there were four very significant negative news stories came out of the SNP. Mm. There was Nicola Sturgeon, who pitched up at Parliament and suddenly had a scrum of cameras in front of her. So that was a piece of news. Hamza Youssef said the party wasn't going to return the £600,000 of donations. That happened yesterday afternoon. Colin Beattie said he didn't know when he was treasurer about the camper van. That happened yesterday afternoon. And then one minute later pops up another news flash that Stephen Flynn and Ian Blackford are calling each other liars in public um, about the auditors at Westminster. These are all very significant bits of news. And the SNP that I know would not have allowed it to happen. The SNP that Jeff Aberdeen was running media for would not have allowed it to happen. Um, and even after Jeff left, his successors would not have allowed it to happen. Mm. And so, you know, there are very good people still there. There are good people who Jeff and I both know very well and who Anas knows very well as well around the table, advising Hamza. Um, they can get a hold of this and by God, they have to. Mm. Feels like we've been saying it for weeks, but it's an interesting thought uh, to start the podcast. Let's bring in Anas Sarwar. Um, it's so good to have you with us, Anas. I mean, when you look at the, the SNP just now and just as a kind of uh, on this party discipline point, do you, how do you how do you kind of view that as a party leader? Are you kind of looking at that and saying, "Gosh, here's what they need to do to fix it"? Are this Are you looking at it and saying this is impossible for them to fix? Just in your experience of trying to sort of keep a party in line, what what is your analysis of what's happening? Well, if they need any advice on crisis management, I'm sure the Scottish Labour Party could give them lots of <laughs> good tips on how to manage their way through crisis situations. The thing that strikes me most about the last couple of weeks is, look, I'm, I'm a critic of the SNP government. I'm not, not going to be a surprise. Mm. Uh, but what they have, you know, I would question whether they're a good government, but what they've always been good at is being a fantastic communications agency. And, and I would say they were a comms agency rather than the government. The problem is they're now a comms agency that aren't good at the comms. Uh, and I think Jeff and Andy are both right. They aren't even getting uh, the basics right. And that is, of course, a, a huge situation within the SNP. It's a huge situation in terms of trying to get uh, action on by government because we need a government right now. We've got the twin crises of an NHS crisis and a cost of living crisis. My God, we need a functioning government in Scotland uh, right now. But the SNP just seem completely incapable of it. From a human perspective, 
people keep saying to me and that you guys must be loving this right now. This is fantastic for the Labour Party. In, a, in actual fact, from, on a personal level, I do feel sorry for them because mm. on a human level, it is an absolute tragedy and and you don't wish that on, on anybody. You know, some people keep push back with me and say, well, they were really nasty to Wendy Alexander over a, a small donation or they were really nasty to other political leaders. And my answer back to that is, you know, they reap what they sow. We shouldn't, that shouldn't mean we want to behave in the same way and we should hold ourselves to a different standard. And I think some of the very machine um, that was built up around trying to attack and silence their opposition is now a very part of the machine, I think, and mechanics, I think, that's now eating themselves in terms of the internal disputes that's happening in the SNP. From my perspective, I don't think it's good enough for opposition political parties and for a party that aspires to be in government just to step back and think that age-old rule of never interrupt your opponents when they're making a mistake. Mm. Actually, I want to interrupt them. And the reason why I want to interrupt them is, one, because going back to the fact that we need a functioning government and we've got big issues right now in our country that are actually more important than the internal dynamics of the SNP, but also there is no shortcut. I am not one that thinks the wheels fall off the SNP bus, people automatically transfer their support to the Labour Party and the Labour Party then forms a government. We have got, there are no shortcuts, there is no complacency. We've got to do the hard work in terms of trying to build up the ideas and the energy with humility to go out, build the support, build the trust and try and compete to win elections again, mm-hmm. something the Labour Party's not been able to do in Scotland for some 15 years. Yeah, lots of those themes actually will return to during our conversation today. So it's, it's nice to sort of set that uh, some of those running. I, d- I did just wonder, just before we, um, before we started recording, I was kind of considering... What does the leader of the Labour Party in opposition in Scotland do? What is your schedule each day? What is your kind of primary focus? What does it feel like to be the Labour leader in Scotland? I think you can approach leadership in in different ways. Um, and, you know, some leaders have thought their job is to get opposition right in the parliament. Um, some leaders have thought their job is to speak to the base and to amplify the views of the base and their own membership. Some leaders have thought the job is just to roll into First Minister's questions and then roll back out again and then roll back in again. Mm. To be honest, the job, I think, of leadership is, one, is to develop people, and that means change your political party, develop people, develop the infrastructure, develop the campaign machine, develop the messaging machine. Secondly, is to... analogy I often use with my team is, imagine we were in the private sector, and you were a new cola company like Pepsi trying to compete with this massive machine of Coca-Cola, what you would do is you would say, okay, how do we improve the product and make it the best product available, that being the idea is the manifesto? How then do we sell the product? That's around marketing. That's your media operation, your digital campaigning. And then how do you persuade people to be loyal to that product and to buy the product? That's the campaigning infrastructure and then also the winning of the elections part. That, for me, is how I view mm. it, my role within the Labour Party is getting it back on track, making it a credible organisation again, eh, de- demonstrating we're changing, demonstrating we're modernising, demonstrating we're facing the future. Second, being out there engaging. So most of my time that I spend is not in the Parliament. I'm actually only in the Parliament one day a week. Really? I like to spend most of my time outside of the Parliament talking to people, learning from people, learning from their experiences, but also learning from the ideas so we can build a manifesto come the election in 2024 and 2026. Mm. And then the third part of that is developing people. We have a people problem. And I don't mean that in terms of a lack of talent, 
or a lack of numbers of people, we have a people problem in terms of we've got to bring those people together, uh, help them, support them, navigate them through so they can be future candidates, future government ministers, future special advisors, future uh, comms directors in, within our own political organisation mm -hmm. or indeed in government. We have got to build that infrastructure so we can take on the criticism, something that I saw one of uh, your colleagues in the media make, I think, a right criticism, I think, of us uh, just at the weekend, which is we need our opposition parties not just to look like they're a credible opposition, they need to look like they're a credible proposition that they could somehow lead this country and govern this country. That's what I'm trying to build in the Labour Party. Really interesting stuff you've said there, uh, particularly about getting out and about out with the Parliament. And a recent poll, Ipsos Murray, in terms of favourability kind of levels, had uh, a positive rating for you of 26%, um, an unfavourable one of 30%. But most importantly, I think, was 36% were not sure, unaware, which tells me that, you know, a lot of people don't know you quite yet. Now, you've been a leader for a few years, and, and, and I wonder how much of your approach uh, going into the, the general election, indeed the, the holiday election thereafter, is a balance between, right, attaching yourselves to policies, but also ensuring that the brand um, of Anna Sarwar is out there as well and introducing you. Because there is obviously an opportunity, there is a window here for you to kind try and go through and, 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 and establish yourself. But I find that quite a large percentage of people still not perhaps sure or who, who you are as an individual and a politician. So how do you strike that balance going yeah. forward? I think you you make a really good point, Jeff, and it's been it's been two years rather than three, but um, but a lots a lots happened in that two years. I, I think I think it demonstrates a challenge. Um, so the way I think about it in my own head is when I took up leadership two years ago, only seven percent of people in Scotland believed Labour would win the next general election across the UK, and we were at some polls sixteen percent, some polls eighteen percent in the polls. Two years ago, thirty two points behind the SNP. In recent polls, and some polls it's five points, some polls it's eight points, depending on which uh, poll you look at. And over 50% of people now believe Labour can win the next general election. So th th those two frames have shifted significantly. Where I think we've still got job work to do is one, of course, to build up a personal brand, and that personal brand's got to be more than just what we see about and about. It needs to be based on ideas and, and a vision for the country. I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware of that, about building that positive alternative. But there, again, there's no shortcut to that. That That is a hard slog, particularly when you're, in the Scottish Parliament terms, the third party where you're competing to get in the news package at all, eh, and people aren't even watching the news packages anymore unless they're of a certain age eh, in terms of watching those eh, television. Eh, people are, are now opting to to choose what they watch, when they watch, through streaming, etc., and and indeed via, via podcasts. So in that sense, the only way I can get cut through is being out there on the streets, the old-style campaigning, doing more town hall events, doing more engagement events, doing more roundtables, doing more receptions, but then also building up our digital infrastructure. And let me give you an example of what I mean by digital infrastructure. When I took on the leadership two years ago, the average reach of the Scottish Labour Party across all our channels was 30,000 people a week. Now, that's woeful. At the same time, the SNP's re weekly reach was 1.5 million people a week across all of their channels, whether that's their leadership eh, or indeed their party channels across all different platforms. We have gone from 30,000 a week to now reaching almost a million people a, a wow. week in terms of our digital channels. So, so so that demonstrates the job of work we've got to do partly on the street, 
partly round tables, partly in the parliament, partly broadcast, partly digital. But the big bit that's missing, I think, that we have got to work on between now and the next general election and the next Scottish Parliament election is I think we've probably persuaded lots of people why we think the Tories and the SNP deserve to lose. I think the hardest part in politics is now persuading people why Labour deserves to win. Mm. And that's the bit that in this phase of, of leadership, I am relentlessly wanting to pursue is both in terms of what a growth plan is for Scotland, how do we develop that, and an NHS plan, something you discussed with Gene Freeman, I thought that was a great podcast actually, mm -hmm. an NHS and social care plan that's about building the NHS fit for the future. Those for me are the two big areas mm -hmm. that I want us to develop over the coming year. Since you mentioned it with Gene, because that was a really good podcast, and I mean, you obviously will know Gene from your time together in the Parliament, um, and I'm sure like most people have got a high regard for Jean and, and her abilities and the fact that mainly the fact that she is not tribal and she actually has a lot of good ideas and wants to work with people. I thought the most interesting thing that Jean said in that whole podcast was that before COVID, she was talking to the Royal Colleges and other stakeholders about significant NHS reform. Um, now that chimes actually with the person who I think is, you know, the leading commentator on health in this country at the moment, which is Wes Streeting, who appears to me to be the person who is pretty boldly standing up there and saying, this it's is not, not Jackie about... Bailey, should we got to... <laughs> <laughs> this is... <laughs> With... Of course I would never say anything bad about Jackie Bailey. I was talking about UK White. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, Wes Streeting is, is unashamedly standing up there and saying, this is not about money, right? We can't just throw money into this and expect it to get better. That's not going to work anymore. And Gene said the same thing on the podcast. I am interested in whether or not there has to be a bit of a difference in the message that UK Labour gives to the message that Scottish Labour gives. Because I wonder if Scottish Labour, if Jackie standing up and saying, sorry, folk, this is no longer just about chucking money into this black hole. We've actually got to start again and reform the health service. Is that a message that sits as easily for Scottish Labour and Jackie and you as it does for West Streeting and Labour throughout the UK? Yes, and we've said it, and, and, I'll, and I'll say a bit more about that in a second, but, but I think just because you mentioned Jean, I think it's important to, to say something because uh, obviously, you know, I, I was leading the campaign around the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital and justice for the for the families impacted by the infection scandal and uh, and for the whistleblowers who were the clinicians on the front line. And I've honestly got to say that Jean Freeman becoming health secretary was a game changer in terms of the relationship that the clinicians, the patients had with uh, both government and indeed in terms of delivery of the inquiry into the Queen Elizabeth. And I honestly think, and uh, you know, Gene Freeman and I had lots of arguments. We disagreed about lots of things politically, of course, but I never doubted for a second when I was having those conversations with her both in the parliament, but more often in private, that she was true to her word and that she was on, she was true to her word, not just to me, but to the clinicians and to the families to make sure we got answers and justice. I think the tragedy of it is, is that when she vacated that uh, position, and uh, I'm not making a, a deliberately political point here about Hamza Youssef, but there is, a, there is a problem here, is that when Hamza Youssef became the health secretary, he, be, he very much became the symbol and the voice for the machine of the National Health Service, rather than trying to challenge the machine when the machine was getting it wrong. Whereas Gene Freeman was willing to challenge the machine 
and knock heads together to get answers. And I honestly think we've gone backwards in terms of support for families, confidence of families and confidence in the uh, from the clinicians about getting the answers to the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital since Jean advocated that post. And for that reason, and many other reasons, but for that reason in particular, I will always have Jean in particularly high regard and respect for her because she was willing to take on what is quite a powerful NHS establishment in order to get answers uh, for families. Um, on the wider issue, um, money is not going to solve uh, the National Health Service. Uh, but, it's, but you can't say money is not important in the National Health Service. Of course, resources are important. But actually, there's four parts to how we're going to reform and rebuild the National Health Service. Uh, one part is resource, but the other three parts are in many ways even more significant. Second is workforce. We have not got a credible workforce plan that's going to build the NHS of the 21st century, even though we're 23 years in to the 21st century. So how do we get the workforce right and redesign that workforce, a focus more on primary care and wraparound community care rather than a focus on acute care is the only way we're going to resolve many of those challenges to make it a preventative service rather than a reactive service, which the NHS often feels like it is. The third part is going to be design. The design of our National Health Service is completely wrong. At this moment in time, we have, what, 50 boards for a population of 5 million people. So you've got the 14 territorial boards, you've got the five or six specialist boards, you've got the 31 integrated joint boards. Why do we need all these chief executives, all these financial directors, all these managers, all this bureaucracy for a National Health Service of 5 million people? So, that, so we need reform of the system. And the fourth bit is technology. The innovation in technology, both in terms of rapid diagnosis, but also of innovative treatments, is the root out of all this huge pressure on the acute sector and how we use technology and procure that technology differently from the current model within the National Health Service is the, is the root out. So our plan is, we are doing much of the work that Jean was talking about with the Royal Colleges. We are in the process of doing similar work where we have set out that frame is on resource, workforce, um, service design and technology. How do we rebuild and renew the National Health Service from the ground up? It needs a whole scale rebuilding if we are going to make it fit for the future. Really fascinating, Anna. I was going to—I've got two questions of my one—a quick one, hopefully a quick response. Well, when when Jean was on our podcast, I asked her. I said, you know, if Hamza came to you and said, "Look, I've undertaken to." Uh, formally uh, review and reform the NHS and said, look, I'd like you to have a look at this gene and join perhaps a task force or something like that to oversee that. Can we accept from your comments, therefore, that if you're First Minister post-26, that you'd extend a similar olive branch to somebody like Gene Freeman? My olive branch is to Gene and to everybody, actually. I don't care what your politics has been in the past. I don't care how you voted in the past. If you've got a good idea about how we fix almost every single institution in Scotland that feels weaker and broken after 16 years of this government, then I will listen and I will work with you because this goes beyond party politics for us. We have got to rebuild this nation and maximise its potential. It is the greatest country on earth. We have a biased view on this, but it's being held back, I think, because we're not maximising our potential, both economically but also socially. And I know you guys have discussed economics on this um, podcast a lot. I'm, 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 you asked for a short answer, so I'm not going to get into economic policy with you right now unless you want to expand on it. But the short, but the short answer is yes. 
if someone's got a good idea and they want to share it with us and it helps build Scotland and, cha and deliver change in Scotland, I'm willing to listen. Brilliant. No, listen, and 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 uh, that very good answer. But yes, I do want to get to economic policy actually, um, because we have been discussing this, as you rightly say, for a number of weeks now. And of course, we have a new well-being economy uh, cabinet secretary in uh, place. And Andy Callum and I have had guests on, be discussing the importance of economic growth to our nation. I mean, our our productivity is stagnating. Uh, we're not creating enough jobs. We're not scaling up a new uh, or starting up a, a, enough uh, small medium enterprises. So let's play fantasy politics for a second. Your first minister, we know I what you're going to do. I agree health. with all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but you're, you know, we know what you're going to try and attempt to do with health. Very substantial answer there. How are you going to try and generate greater income uh, through economic policy? I think that there's two principal points I think that's important to say right straight off the bat, which is we should not waste any of our political time, political energy in debating whether economic growth is a good thing or not, or whether economic growth matters or not. It, honestly, I cringe when I see in the parliament that we're spending time debating whether growth is a good thing or not. It, I thought we'd move past that basic principle. Economic growth is, of course, crucial to our country's future, it's crucial to our prosperity. And you don't get to do all the things you want to do in social policy unless it's backed up with a successful economy and a growing economy. So we've got to get that straight off the bat. And for me, thinking about that plan for 2026, it is going to be laser-like in terms of the economy and then how you build from the economy those strong public services you need to deliver for the country because you can't do one without the other. The second principal point is, one of my biggest frustrations with the Scottish Parliament, in the 24 years we've had the Scottish Parliament, it has felt like a social policy parliament rather than economic policy parliament. And if you strip away economic policy in terms of debates, ideas and delivery, you are weakening yourself when it comes to delivering all those things you want to do around social policy. And let me give you a practical example of that. Many people still don't know that having better growth in our economy means greater tax receipts for the Scottish Parliament, meaning more money for the Scottish Government to spend. And, and right now, I think one of the big frustrations for people is, in the absence of a proper economic strategy and economic growth, we are substituting that with a debate about progressive taxation. Progressive taxation is, of course, a good thing, a principle I support, a Labour principle, but, but progressive taxation could not be a substitute for ignoring delivering economic growth in our economy, because one undermines the other if you don't get it right. In terms of economic growth itself, I think there are uh, three priority areas for us as, as, a, as a country in terms of brand Scotland, um, if we are going to deliver economic growth. The first one is maximising our opportunities through the Green Revolution. So how do we, through the Great British Energy Company, that we're going to establish across the UK, how do we root that in Scotland so we're making the strategic investments, not that they become, we're nationalising the oil and gas industry or the energy industry in Scotland, far from it, but how do we make sure that we're putting in a government stake that inspires confidence in the private sector and leverages in more investment and more spending from the private sector for us to maximise our opportunities around those jobs? That means money in uh, the ACORN project in carbon capture and onshore wind, offshore wind, hydrogen, all of that I think is really, really important. 
I think we should have an open and honest discussion about nuclear energy in, in Scotland. I think this ideological block to nuclear power in Scotland, I think, undermines our economic credibility and that security base we need in terms of our energy supply here in Scotland. Even those countries that produce 100% of their output or requirements from um, renewable energy, many of them have a nuclear baseline to give them protection and stability in terms of their energy generation. Take Spain as the example of that. So we should be looking at similar in Scotland. And I think that investment is really possible. I would also link community benefit to that investment, mm. because I think if you if you link community benefit and community shareholding into that investment, it can help answer some of the funding for local government issues we have across the country, but also give greater economic levers in terms of regional growth that we so often don't see in Scotland. For example, the regional growth we need in our island communities, where I was a couple of weeks ago, or the regional growth we need in our more rural and remote communities. By giving those communities a stake in their onshore, offshore wind capacity, that gives them a funding resource to make further investments in those individual communities. The second part is financial services and tech. Financial services make up 8% of our GDP in Scotland. We've got to give stability and confidence to maintain those financial services here and to build on those financial services. And the biggest gap those financial services face is in terms of people with technological skills. In Scotland, we need around 13,000 tech skill jobs every single year. We're only producing 3,500 of those tech skill jobs right now. How do we build a tech hub here in Scotland so we can maximise the technological advancement, both in terms of our economic needs, but then also that's going to come inevitably from our public sector needs as well. So how we build that e economic transformation around tech. That would be the second one. And the third bit would be around Brand Scotland and tourism. And we have, such, we have amazing soft power in Scotland. Brand Scotland has leverage and power right around the world. The US market being one prime example, the Japanese market being another example, mm. is why are, we not, why are we not leveraging in that brand Scotland to leverage an investment and leverage an exporting capacity? At the moment, it feels like we have spent 16 years trying to sell Scotland to the Scots. I want Scotland's always been at its best and Scotland has sold itself to the rest of the UK and to the rest of the world. That's what I want us to do in terms of brand Scotland. And then tourism is a low-hanging fruit, I think, for us in terms of getting more people to come here, visit here, spend money here, fall in love here, chart their family's history and heritage links here, and then make investments here and export from here as well. But again, it feels like we've got an ideological block around international travel, direct flights, et cetera, which is hampering us here in Scotland. I realise I gave a very, very long answer, but I want to give you a, a fulsome answer, Jeff, in terms of the kind of areas we're looking at and grow Scotland's economy. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Holyrood Sources. We are in conversation this week with the Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sarwar. Email your thoughts. Hello at hollyroodsources.com is the email address to get in touch. And since you're listening, well, you might as well follow and subscribe for even more Scottish political conversation every week. George, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to hand you over Andy here because um, I know he's going to have a question. Um, he's got a bit of a hobby horse on the greens. So I think we can probably suggest that post-26, uh, you probably won't be giving your answers on economic growth in a coalition with the greens. But Andy, uh, you take it. Um, I mean, to be honest, I think the hobby horse of the greens is with a lot of people in the SNP more than it is with me. But, um, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, and so none of what none of what Anna said there surprises me because I have had a lot of clients in the Scottish Parliament over the last few months um, seeing various members of Anna's team, and everybody at the moment behind the scenes in the world that Jeff and I operate in are very impressed with Labour. Labour are talking the language of people from charities to small businesses uh, and to big businesses all around the country. And they're managing, the team, Anas's team at the moment, is managing to combine that ability to speak for workers and to speak for employers at the same time. And it's actually a really important thing to do. It gets to the heart of that ability to say, yes, we need social policy, but we also need economic policy. Yes, we need economic growth, because if you don't have economic growth, you can't redistribute the stuff. Um, now, that might seem entirely straightforward and sensible and normal, but it's actually not widespread enough at the moment in the Scottish Parliament. Mm. And Labour is definitely the party just now, uh, and as I say, I know that from my personal experience in, in the day job, Labour is the party at the moment which is able to give that message most credibly and Labour is really impressing people. One thing that I think is interesting, though, and as you were in Stornoway last week, I was actually there the week before you came up, and it is... I was deliberately avoiding you, Andy, actually. I know you were, I know. <laughs> so, a very good strategy, yeah, nice, well I know. Executed. Neil, Neil yeah. Bibby told me that you were coming up the week after deliberately to make sure you didn't bump into me at the co-op, but anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> um, that's a classic example of where I think the SNP have got a short, medium and a long-term issue, right? Because we have this situation where the disconnect between urban and rural is... And, you know, my dad's from Stornoway and I'm from Edinburgh, and so I, I see both sides of this and we're, you know, we're up there a lot. Um, I think the disconnect between urban and rural is greater than it has ever been in my lifetime. I think the feeling in rural communities that policy is being done to them rather than done for them is greater than it has ever been. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of what Anas is talking about there, tourism, renewables, aquaculture, these are things that take place in rural areas for the benefit of everybody. And the question at the moment is, is the government operating in that way? I said in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, that if you look around that cabinet table, there are 10 people around the cabinet table, only two could be said to fairly be from a rural constituency. Mm. One is Mary McAllen, who's in Clydesdale, which is 10 minutes from Glasgow, at its northwest end. The other one is Mary Goodgen, who's in Angus North and Mairns, 
which is rural, but is also right in the middle of Aberdeen and Dundee and has got the A90 running through the middle of it. This is hardly back of beyond stuff. And so when rural communities say that they don't feel that they are represented, when they feel that it is, you know, as Fergus Ewing would say, urban wine bar revolutionaries walking the corridors of power and not actually doing anything for them, it's very difficult to credibly say to these people, nah, you're wrong. You're wrong about that. Because actually you do wonder whether or not they are in fact right about that. As somebody in Stornoway said to me when I was up there the other week, even Calmac are based in the central belt. Yeah. Even Calmac are based in the central belt. So what, chan you know, what chance have we got here to actually be represented? And I suppose that gets round to a really interesting question for Labour because rural Scotland is not natural Labour territory. It's not. And yet Labour is the party that probably needs to try to exploit that as much as possible. And, you know, to be honest about it, if we were in any other country which doesn't do its politics according to the Constitution like Scotland does, it's probably a fair chance that Anas Sarwar and Hamza Yusuf are in the same political party. They're well, maybe both in the Social Democrat Party in any other country, right? How do you become the central belt leader who can talk to rural communities in a more credible way and get their support, I suppose, is the question. And, and Anas, before you come in, it's probably just worth reminding listeners at home that this isn't Andy McKeever, this is your life. We've got the, <laughs> we've got the Scottish Labour leader on. I mean, a, a short <laughs> question, please, for God's sake. <laughs> I was giving him time to breathe. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a listening and learning leader, so I'm OK, I'm okay with, uh, with Andy. There, there was lots in it, um, Andy, so... Um, let, let, let me try and go, unpick I'm going to mute now. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me try and unpick bits of it. This is why I was avoiding you in the Western Isles that week. You'd <laughs> <laughs> um, never have got anything done. <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't be able to speak to the actual locals, you know, um, not the visiting honorary like Andy. Um, but look, a few things in that is I, I, think, I think you're right about disconnect in terms of rural and remote communities. But let me, let me give you one Glasgow example and then I'll, and then I'll speak about the, the islands. We do not have a direct flight between North America and Glasgow this entire calendar year. That is devastating for Glasgow's economy and Glasgow's economic opportunity and Glasgow's hospitality industry and Glasgow's businesses. And we have at the moment, I would imagine, a government hostility to being interventionalist in supporting our airports to attract more direct routes into Scotland. And I imagine that's largely down to the coalition with the Greens. Um, th that cannot hold back our economic opportunities. We need people to come here, travel here, enjoy here, spend money here, buy stuff from here, export stuff out here. That needs people to travel in and out of here. So that means direct flights. So, so that disconnect, I think, exists in terms of now more urban communities, not just rural and remote communities. Specifically on the islands, the big thing I took away from my uh, few days in, in the Western Isles with our fantastic candidate, I better give him a plug, uh, Torco Crichton, who's our, our candidate in the Western Isles, who I know will be well known to, to all of you, is it was so interesting to hear how it feels like decisions in the parliament that impact on the islands are taken by central belt lovies making decisions about islanders when they have no understanding of their life, no understanding of how the island operates, and no understanding of, the, of their needs, both socially and economically. And the HBMA policy is a prime example of that, but not the only example of that. The ferry scandal being the other prime example. Can you imagine if 
the Glasgow to Edinburgh train was uh, affected as often as the Stornoway to Ullapool route was or some of the ferries were, there would be absolute uproar. It would be mainstream news and urgent solutions would be found for it. When it comes to the island communities, it feels like it's a afterthought and it's simply not good enough. Mm. What's the solution to it? So you're right, part of the challenge is um, how do you, as a city boy like me from Glasgow, sitting in a parliament in Edinburgh, relate to the lives and experiences of people in the, in the Western Isles and you know other rural and remote communities. Part of it is making sure we've got good representation and good candidates in those constituencies that are the voice for those communities to the Labour Party, not the Labour Party's voice to those communities. And again, Torquil is a good prime example of that, but we need more Torquil Crichtons in all parts of, of the country. Secondly, we've got to get the hell out of the Parliament. Um, and this is the point I make to my colleagues all the time. We're not going to win votes in the Parliament because of the parliamentary arithmetic. And we're not going to win voters in the Parliament because they don't watch it. We're only going to win voters if we're out of the Parliament, talking to people, learning from their experiences, and then projecting their experiences in the Parliament, and then more importantly, in our own policy uh, making. So that, that's the second part, is being there more often and being visible there. Then the third part, and this is the most important part, because the talking is the easy bit, the action's the harder bit, is what are these solutions? And I think there are genuine solutions we can have that can demonstrate to people in our island communities that we can deliver for them. Mm. That's partly around the community wind farms, onshore wind, offshore wind, hydrogen, and making sure they have a stake in that, and that means more investment locally. It's partly around greater tourism, so how do we get more cruise ships, for example, being able to dock in the Western Isles for the day coming up, particularly from the US, because so much, so much of the US population has a heritage link to Scotland that they want to come, trace those routes, see those routes, and spend money here. How do we, how do we get more of that tourism? Third, how do we maximise the onshore wind, offshore wind hydrogen with community investment so that they can get more spending, for example, on their social care on the island, anti-poverty projects on the island, economic development on the island, mm. and then and then sort the ferries issue out once and for all? Because when people think about the ferries, what they think about is it's a shame people can't get off the island to go and visit pals and mainland or people can't on the mainland go and visit their family on, on the islands. Actually, the ferry scandal is much, much bigger than that. It means produce and supplies not getting on the islands, but it also crucially means produce that's created in the, in the Western Isles can't get off the island in order for people to sell it to the rest of the UK and indeed sell it to the rest of the world. Yeah. So we've got to get a long-term fix to the ferry scandal. And for me, the long-term fix to the ferry scandal is not us trying to procure two ferries at a time and then making a mess of it either at Ferguson's or exporting the work to Poland or to, or to Turkey. It's how do we package up a long-term 15-year plan on a new fleet of ferries that allows people within the UK to bid for those contracts and deliver on those contracts. And so they're willing to make the investments in their own dockyards in order, okay, they might make a loss on the first two, three, four ferries, but they know it's worth the investment because they've got a stream of ferries for the next 15 years to make sure we've got that continuity of supply. Mm. And the final bit, and you're right about CalMac, is CalMac feels so remote from the islands, partly because it's not a service based in the island that then goes to the mainland. It's a service based in the mainland that then goes to the island. And secondly, it has no adequate representation of islanders. That's got to be flipped the other way around. This is a vital service for the islanders that we've got to deliver a solution, a long-term answer on. Mm. And again, this is the challenge I set myself. 
the easy bit in politics is to say what's wrong. The harder bit is to say what you're going to do about it. And that's what we're relentlessly focusing on. It's really interesting. And I think one of the things about this, Ennis, that's coming across is your willingness to sort of engage with people. And one thing we'll come back to in a second, actually, is actually your clarity of vision and direction of travel, which I think is really interesting, given where we are at, perhaps, in an electoral cycle. But just in terms of kind of getting out and about, speaking to people, getting out of the parliament, how many members are you speaking to? How many members does the Scottish Labour Party have? You mean party members? Yeah, party members. How ma- we know how many the SNP has, a little over 70,000. How many do you have? We, we, we publish our, our party numbers every year in our, our accounts. I don't, I don't know the exact figure just now, but I think the important point to, to note here is, one, we never got involved in the whole dispute and fight about how many party members of the SNP have. The issue there was around transparency, about being, being truthful about the mm. figures. But I think there's a second lesson here. And actually, it's a hard lesson for the Labour Party that we've had to learn the hard way, and perhaps the SNP are now learning uh, the hard way as well, is if you think about the huge increase we had in membership through the Corbyn years, we could have said to ourselves, our membership's the largest it's ever been. We've got hundreds of thousands of members. We were still getting dubbed in the elections. So I think that there is no direct correlation between party membership and the number of voters you have. Of course, I want us to have lots of members. Of course, I want people to, to join us. But I'm more interested in having more voters rather than, uh, than our opponents, sure. rather than more members than our opponents, because it's the voters and the electorate that win us the elections. And, and again, that's the final point, is we can spend our times obsessing about talking to ourselves about ourselves and the ideas within. Unless we're reaching out, we're going to lose. And I'm not one of those leaders that thinks the Labour Party was always right, the electorate got it wrong. We got gubbed in those elections because we weren't good enough. Mm. The electorate were right, the Labour Party were wrong. And I'm, I want to give them the Labour Party that they can believe in, trust in and support. So the number of votes we've got matters to me more than the number of members we have. That's interesting. Let's talk about Sir Keir Starmer. When, when was the last time you had a chat with Sir Keir? Uh, I think it was about two weeks ago, I think. Is that pretty regular? He was, he was a regular visitor here during the SNP leadership election. He was yeah. here, I think, every week of the SNP leadership election. <laughs> He's clearly enjoying it as much as I want. Yeah, you're too. He, re- didn't, he, he didn't win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your, your tourism plan for Scotland's working. I'm not sure. I think, I think he thinks he might have. <laughs> Touché. Very good. It's. I mean, it's always an interesting dynamic, isn't it? The, the kind of Scottish Labour, UK Labour, how the two interact, how the leaders work together. And actually, one point, if I may, that that sort of maybe differentiates you at this stage is the the clarity that you are setting out your vision for Scotland, which is something that um, Sir Keir's kind of being found a little bit wanting in at the moment in terms of his vision in the run-up to the next general election. Is is that a divergence, do you think, that, that you have a vision and he's perhaps just not revealed his yet? No, I think that's, I think that's probably un- unfair. I mean, first thing to say is relationships really matter and, you know, we can have the best model uh, you like and take the devolution example as a, as a perfect example of that. You can have the best devolution model in the world if you have bad faith actors on either side or both sides, it's not going to work. And same with any business or any organisation, you can have the best structures in the world. If you can't get the people to get on with each other and be able to work with each other, it's not going to work. And I think the most important thing in terms of my relationship with Keir is we have a mutual respect for each other. We both genuinely like each other. We both enjoy being in each other's company and we both are willing to listen to both ideas, but also criticisms from each other. I think that's really, really important. 
I'm really, really open with him. He knows from day one, I've set this frame with him, that we are we are in a linked relationship in the sense that he needs Scottish Labour to do better in order to be the Prime Minister across the UK. But he also knows that from two years ago, I said, I need UK Labour to be better so I can persuade people in Scotland that a UK government is possible and this isn't as good as it gets and we aren't stuck with perpetual Tory governments. Mm. And I think that open dialogue is really important. I think the other yeah. point, going on the vision point, the way I think we are we both completely understand in terms of this next phase of uh, our, our respective leaderships is it, Keir, Keir, similar to I, had a job of work to do in terms of changing the Labour Party and getting credibility back. He then had a job of work to do, as I did, in terms of being a credible opposition uh, and being able to expose the failures of either a UK Tory government or a Scottish SNP government. Uh, that's obviously been complicated by the change of leadership a few times over the course in terms of the UK. But what he's acutely aware of now is this next phase, between now and the next general election, we have to set out what that positive alternative is. And I think he's done that around the, the five missions. Mm. I think the next part of the five missions, though, is how do you turn those missions into ideas that people can say, this is what I get if I vote Labour? What does being the fastest growing economy in the G7 mean for me? Mm. What does clean energy by 2030 mean for me? What does better public services mean for me? What does safer communities mean for me? What does opportunity for all mean for me? That is the next part is making it real for people, not just saying, let's get rid of this rotten Tory government, which is really important for us, particularly in Scotland. And, and some people say that message is good enough in Scotland. But beyond that, what does that change look like? Yeah, I, just just on that, uh, Anis, I mean, I, Andy and I were in a chat the other day about this very point about when Keir Starmer really needs to uh, set out his stall about what he's going to do. We know what he's against, but we don't necessarily know entirely what he's for. Uh, and you've kind of answered that uh, kind of question in terms of the approach and what we can expect from him. What I wanted to ask you just on this, though, is the points of divergence that Callum was talking about earlier on. My observation of the Labour Party in 2006 was that uh, Jack McConnell, and he was actually quite public about it, I was reading a Guardian column from back then uh, recently, uh, was quite frustrated at the relationship with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and he was kind of viewed uh, in many ways as, as a lesser individual. And we pounced on that in the SNP uh, and, and recognised this is not a parliament that can stand up for you, they're kowtowing to, to Westminster. So how much divergence are you going to have or, or uh, flexibility are you going to have in some of the policy discussions in the run-up to 2026? And, and secondly, can we expect a stiffening, a strengthening of the, the Gordon Brown Reviewer Commission in terms of your offer to the people in the Constitution? So if you're trying to attract that SNP soft voter, uh, is there something there that you're going to try and uh, uh, pitch your wagon to? So f firstly, on the differentiation, I mean, th there's already a, f a few areas where there's a, a clear difference in approach between both the Scottish party and the, and the UK party. And I can honestly, hand in heart, tell you that there has, there has never been, uh, oh, you can't do this, or why are you doing this? Uh, often it's, it's the other way around of, okay, let's think about the thinking of that. Is that something we could do similar across the UK and vice versa? That's something we could do similar uh, in Scotland. Uh, so so, the, so there will be that, that freedom. There is no, no doubt about that. I think the only bit that's going to be really different is right now you have a Scotland office under a UK Tory government that feels like a Scotland office that's there to be the eyes and ears and spy on Scotland, whereas a Scotland office under a Labour government will be seen as a vehicle 
to champion Scotland, champion the cause of Scotland, champion the economy of Scotland and champion the social issues in Scotland. And that is going to be a massive, massive shift. And, and, and it's, it's hard to emphasize how significant that is um, when you think about the, the current politics we have right now. And again, thinking about 2026, this is something I've said to Keir directly a number of times, is I want you to win. I want you to be prime minister. But actually, what's really important for me is I need to be going into the election in 2026 with the midterm of a popular Labour government, not the midterm of an unpopular Labour government. And therefore, what we are both working on is not just how we get to that election, how we win it, but actually, particularly those first two years, what does a delivery plan for Scotland look like and feel like so people going into the election in 2026 can see what change Labour is on the track of delivering, delivered some of it already, of course, but on track of delivering so they can believe that when Labour makes you know, a, a policy offer come 2026, they know what they're going to get because there's a demonstration of some of that change already through the Labour government across the UK. So that, that for me, is a, is, a, is a huge, huge priority. I think there's one thing within the Gordon Brown Commission, so it's a really important piece of work, and this isn't a, a way we'd frame it in terms of public campaigns or in terms of the general election, but I've always in my, in my mind thought that we've got, to, we've got to have a package of democratic renewal, social renewal, and economic renewal. And I think the democratic renewal bit is, is where the Gordon Brown feature comes, and then how the democratic renewal helps you achieve the social and economic renewal, for me, is, is the important bit, because... I think we often get trapped in thinking that there's a there's a magic potion or a silver bullet of of powers of devolution that means people are going to automatically transfer to voting for the Labour Party. I, I think it's more complex than that. I think people need to know what's it going to mean for me, what's it going to mean for my family, what's it going to mean for my bills, what's it going to mean for my opportunities. That part I think is the next phase of the work of the of the GB uh, the output of the GB Commission. I think the other point that I think is really really important to stress is. Is you, again, you can for a lot of people, one of the reasons why they've been driven towards the SNP and division, driven towards independence is because they just want to get rid of a Tory government. And for 12 years, they haven't believed Labour could win the UK general election. And so the only escape route was independence or, and voting for the SNP. Is, so again, for those people, you could offer them the greatest package on devolution in the world if they say, OK, we're still going to be run by the Tories, we still want out. So, so again, that part I think is what we've got to we've got to fundamentally address, and and that's the plea I make to people, um, and I hope people can see this in the change of tone we've had in the last two years as well. Is look, I don't support independence, I don't support a referendum, but and I would argue there isn't a majority consistent majority for a referendum, there isn't a consistent majority for independence, but there is an overwhelming majority in Scotland for change, and Labour come the twenty twenty four election has to be that change and it has to demonstrate to people what that change means for them and so my plea to people is you know you, we might disagree on the ultimate so take you and i jeff as an example you and i may ultimately and will ultimately disagree on the final destination for scotland but on this part of the journey in terms of getting rid of the tories changing how we a, a culture of cooperation rather than conflict strengthening our scottish parliament strengthening scotland on this part of the journey Let's go on this part of the journey together. That's the plea we'll be making come the next general election. That is, I mean, I think that's very interesting. I, I, I mean, in order for you to be First Minister, broadly speaking, you need two groups of voters back. You don't, you, you haven't had soft unionists and soft nationalists, right? And 
you've pretty much got the soft unionists back, as far as I can tell. I think the Tories have effectively returned to their core vote in high teens. Um, ironically, I think the Supreme Court verdict has torpedoed the Tories because their single-issue policy over the last five or six elections is vote for us to stop Indy Ref 2. Well, the Supreme Court's now stopped Indy Ref 2, so that policy doesn't really apply anymore. And I think that combined with exactly what you just said and asked about uh, the dynamic of Labour in office at Westminster as opposed to the Tories in office at Westminster makes a huge difference to those voters. And I, so I think the kind of soft unionist vote, I think you're pretty much there. I think my observation would be the issue that Labour still has is with that soft nationalist vote. And I do have serious doubts. I mean, these, these are people who are not going on all under one banner marches. They're not flying saltires in their garden, right? They're not dyed in the wool, I will vote yes and SNP no matter what happens. That's not who they are. They're pretty pragmatic people who pretty much put Scotland first, but are usually quite relaxed about the UK. They don't love the UK, but they don't really want to leave it either. And they would probably like an excuse not to have to. Um, and Labour's the only party that can give them that excuse. It's the only party that can bring them back from the SNP and make them vote for a party that believes in the UK. I just have doubts as to whether you can get them back without moving towards them. I don't think they're going to come to you. I think you need to make a stronger pro-devolution offer. And I would go so far as to say, and Jeff can correct me if he thinks I'm wrong, but I suspect the thing that the SNP fears more than anything else is a very strong vision of what devolution looks like in the future under Labour and a very strong um, additional raft of powers for the devolved parliament. I think that would be a nightmare for the SNP. One observation I've always had about the referendum in 2014 is um, throughout the negotiation of the, the franchise with David Cameron, and then we got the, that all agreed, the date set in stone, we were looking at the Labour Party every day. What are they going to do? They're going to come up with an alternative offer. They're going to come up with something. And uh, obviously, you went to Better Together, we could understand that. But we always felt there was going to be a Labour offer, specific offer on enhancing devolution, essentially where the vow ended up. And it didn't happen. And every each passing day, we took a lot of solace in that and encouragement. And, and I do think what Andy's touching on is having that concrete offer to a degree might strengthen your position ahead of both the general election and indeed the, the 26th uh, Holyrood election. I mean, I, I could uh, share with you a number of frustrations about the independence <laughs> referendum campaign, Jeff. And, and the, one, the one you put there is is actually a huge personal frustration for me because I, I won't go into the personality dynamics, but there were lots of strange dynamics in the Labour Party during the independence referendum campaign. Let's just put it that way and put it mildly. And one of the things that, I mean, I, and I was deputy leader of the Scottish Labour Party at the time, and um, I'd, I'd wanted to to run and manage a much more significant Scottish Labour campaign in, in, that, in, in that campaign. And one of the documents that I produced was a document that probably didn't really reach public, um, the real public discourse around the referendum campaign, and there was an internal dynamics for that. But one of the, pub one of the publications I produced was a document called Together We Can, which was a alternative policy platform about what we could achieve uh, in uh, changing, reforming Scotland within a changing and reforming UK. But it never really saw the light of day because of the internal dynamics. 
And so I, I think what I'm meaning is, and answer to Andy's question when I say it's more complicated, is I think that I think there's a misguided view that somehow you come up with a new package of powers and that in itself becomes the answer to the conundrum. It has been a Labour Party tactic now for 15 years. It's not worked. Just being upfront about it. Mm. Um, do I think there's a place for how you enhance devolution and talk about devolution? Of course. But then what you do with devolution, I think, is also really important. And so for me, when I think about the 2026 election, I think you're, you're, you're completely spot on, Andy, when you say the tactic and the challenge in 2026 is much, much more difficult than the tactic in 2024. In 2024, it's pretty easy. You just say to people, the only way of getting rid of a Tory government is if you elect Labour MPs and Labour wins the election, and, and then you have a policy offer on top of that. But in 2026, I actually think it's going to have to be something much, much bigger, bolder, and uh, more ambitious. And what I mean by that is partly around devolution, but beyond devolution, is every single Scottish Parliament election has become an auction. It's become a retail election and an auction election. Which political parties offering the most nurses? Which ones seeing the most uh, the most police officers? Which ones saying they're going to cut the most or freeze this council tax for the longest? That has been the kind of retail uh, Scottish Parliament election. But for me, thinking about the Scottish Parliament election in 2026, I don't want 2026 to be an auction election. I want to go into 2026 election saying every single institution after 20 years or almost 20 years of an SNP government is either weaker or broken. And here is a bold, ambitious, radical plan to rebuild, reform and renew every single one of them. And here's how we're going to do it. And we're going to have co-designed it with the people that need those institutions and work in those institutions in advance. So we're ready to go if we win that election. That for me, that bold, ambitious plan for Scotland is the frame for that 2026. That's partly about the relationship with the rest of the UK, but it's more than just about the, about the relationship with the rest of the UK. That for me is the exam question I've set myself and my team. It's a huge piece of work. There's loads of work to do. We've got three years to do it. The three years are gonna fly by. And that's why we're not gonna wait till after the 2024 election and see what happens and then start building up that plan. That work's happening right now. Mm. There's no shortcuts. Now, very interesting. Now, a very quick answer, a question. Um, what does success look like for the Labour Party in Scotland at the 2024 general election? How many seats do you need to win to say, yeah, this is this is the momentum we needed? Have you got an eye on that? Have you got, you've, you've got a forecast? Yeah, of course, of course. And again, again an open answer. I honestly think that the any majority we get as a UK Labour government is going to come from the seats we deliver in Scotland. And if you look at the electoral uh, maths, uh, you can see that there is a significant tipping point in terms of the share of the vote, where you go from being competitive in seven or eight seats to very quickly being competitive in 15 seats, 20 seats, and then 25 seats. And so uh, being in that 30 to 35% vote range is going to be crucial in, in order for us to look at those number of seats. So I'm not going to put a, a number on it right now. You wouldn't expect me to put a number on it right now. But I think if you look at, if you're on 31%, you're competitive, I think, in 12 seats. 33%, you're competitive in 18 seats. 35%, you're competitive in 24 seats. That's the range we have to be looking at come that next general election so we can help deliver a UK Labour government. Anas, thank you. You've been very, very generous with your time. Uh, so thank you very much. Thanks for joining the podcast. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
That is the Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar in conversation on Holyrood Sources. Scroll back to hear other conversations we've had over the last few weeks, including with Ruth Davidson, former Scottish Conservative leader, Jean Freeman, former Scottish Government SNP Health Secretary, and of course our exclusive with Kate Forbes from just after the leadership contest's conclusion. You can get them all in your podcast feed right now. We will be back next Wednesday, Jeff and Andy and myself, and we will discuss, well, whatever on earth happens between now and then. Do keep in touch email hello at hollywoodsources.com tell your friends press subscribe press follow and we'll speak to you next week even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.